Well, good morning once again. Let me encourage you at home to take out a Bible or uh, turn in your device to Matthew chapter 5. You know, if you had to make a list of topics in Scripture where any kind of teaching or preaching on those topics seems to be so uh, confused or tense, uh, the, the, the passage that we arrive at this morning in the Sermon on the Mount would be near or at the top of that list. Because this morning, Jesus will address the topics of sexual desire, lust, adultery, and sexuality as a whole. And again, these are topics where people often walk away with more questions than they maybe came in with. And there's some understandable reasons why. Um, it, it's a topic wherever you hear it, um, and, and I know you guys are all at home, but if you're watching with anybody at home, or certainly if anyone was in the building hearing, uh, where you immediately become aware of your surroundings, right? Um, where you're immediately self-conscious as to who is around you, who am I listening th- uh, to this with, am I being looked at, how am I going to react, how are they going to react? There, there's, this, there, there's a sense of kind of immediate discomfort once we get into a topic of sexuality in the church. It's also a hard topic because on one hand, there is a lot of hidden shame and guilt from the past. And it's also an area where there's often a lot of hidden sin in the present and sometimes a shame associated with that, but also just the idea of not wanting to be challenged or reminded of anything in this realm because uh, perhaps one has already made peace with what they do. Still more reasons. Perhaps this is a topic as you look back on your Christian life uh, that you have been exposed to a lot of just bad teaching in this area where anything related to sexuality was just all negative, and, and a stigma kind of grow, grew in your life where um, um, anything related to sex was just purely evil and sinful, and maybe growing up in a um, Christian church or a youth group or a, uh, a Christian or Catholic school and, and the so-called purity culture that came to rise in the last couple of generations that has um, in many ways wreaked havoc on the way Maybe you view yourself the way you view um, the opposite sex. Or perhaps you've been hurt by someone else when their private lives were exposed to a family member, a friend, a Christian leader that you looked up to. It is um, interesting timing that we arrive at this passage just two days after the Uh, Ravi Zacharias' report was released that I know many of you um, are aware of. I've heard from several just in the last 48 hours how hurt and disorienting that was for you. I share in those sentiments and how sobering it was, and I will have more to say about that this upcoming week. But in preparing for the sermon, there is this challenge of knowing that um, I'm not preaching to just one specific demographic, that this is uh, in the gathering of local church, even virtually, is men and women. It's kids and adults. There are youth and young adults. There are singled and married and divorced and middle-aged and elderly and everywhere in between. And their life stage impacts the way we view this topic. 
So I say all that to say this, that church, for a relatively short passage, there's, there's four verses we're covering this morning, we have our work cut out for us as we address some of these overarching questions. Like, is it possible to live a life of purity in an overly sexualized world? How can we view sexual desire in a world where sexual orientation has become synonymous with our innermost identities? Where sexual preference is casted as a basic human right in our world? And sexual, sexual satisfaction on demand is something that we feel like we are owed. What happens if we in the church don't follow the biblical design for sexuality? Is this an area where we can say, listen, the ship has kind of sailed on that conversation, and we got to give some ground here, concede defeat in some ways, and we'll still be okay if we do that. Finally, what are practical ways that we can experience victory in an area that so many people feel defeated in? Is there any hope? So yeah, we got our work cut out for us, but would you turn with me and look in Matthew 5, let's read verses 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. I've entitled this sermon, Body and Soul. Because Jesus will expose the primary problem that the scribes and Pharisees had in separating outward actions from inward desires, right? Separating body and soul, and then judging themselves purely on just what the outward actions are instead of the way God views it. As one who cares first about inward desires and then the outward actions that flow out of those desires. And so, so let's set these, um, these verses in its right context, right? That Jesus is the only person in the world who preached a perfect sermon, right? The rest of us are imperfect people preaching perfect content in that it comes from the word, but Jesus is the only perfect person to preach perfect content. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he begins with the character of a true believer first that we spent several weeks unpacking who we are in him. And then he begins to unpack the desires and actions that will flow from a true believer. And the hinge from from Christian character to Christian living occurred at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Recall that within that statement, Jesus is saying two things. First, the Pharisees are not nearly as righteous as you think they are. And second, there is no salvation. There is no entrance into the kingdom of heaven through our own righteousness. 
but it's through his righteousness given to us by grace, through faith. We are first united with Christ by faith, and then we are empowered by the Spirit of Christ to live the lives and carry out the mission he's called us to. That, that was verse 20. And then this next section, and in some ways the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, is really just supporting that point of verse 20. And right away, he now gives six examples to prove his point. Six illustrations where the Pharisees say one thing about God's law, and Jesus will say, but it really means this. And each of the six begin the same way. You have heard it said. And Jesus, remember, he's not correcting the Old Testament, for God's word never needs to be corrected but he is correcting wrong interpretations of the Old Testament that were being given by the scribes and Pharisees. So Joe covered the topic of anger last week, and now we talk about the second example, the polarizing topic of sexual desire and lust. But let us not isolate this passage and these verses from the context of the sermon or from Jesus himself, which is often what happens when these verses get quoted or taught. So we're going to have three points this morning. Point number one is the centrality of the heart. The centrality of the heart. Again, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus recites the seventh commandment from the Old Testament. You shall not commit adultery. Simply put, if someone is married, they are not to have sexually intimate, be sexually intimate with anyone other than their spouse. To do so would be to commit adultery. But Jesus takes it and says that commandment applies not only to the action, but to the desire for it. If anyone looks at a woman with lustful intent, look what he said, has already committed adultery. He doesn't say that he will be tempted to commit adultery, but rather that the lustful desire has made you an adulterer even without acting upon that desire. And this, as you can imagine, is a total affront to the Pharisees and scribes who saw adultery only as a physical action. And they prided themselves on not committing it. They checked that off the list. Command completed. Righteousness raised. So Jesus dismantles their viewpoint and yet, even for them, this should not have been as radical of an interpretation as they might have initially thought. Because do you remember the 10th commandment in the law of Moses? Let me remind you. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So the Pharisees would neglect the 10th commandment when applying the 7th commandment, separating action and desire, separating body and soul, a separation that God never makes. 
So this is a major problem for the scribes and the Pharisees and those who followed them. Because the penalty for committing adultery was death. We see that in John chapter 8, when they brought to Jesus a woman who was an adulterer to see if he would affirm that she should be stoned. But here, Jesus just said, even if you lust after a woman in your heart, you are an adulterer. Meaning, Pharisees, by your own standard of punishment, everyone deserves to die. And by the way, this separation of action and desire in this area is one that we still make today. If I were to tell everybody, hey, everybody at home, close your eyes and raise your hand if you have committed adultery. My guess is the only ones who would raise their hands would be the ones who confess having had, at one point, sexual relations with someone outside of their marriage. Those who did the act. And then I said, okay, everybody put your hands down. Everyone still, eyes closed. Now raise your hand if you ever once have had a lustful desire for someone that was not your spouse. Who's raising their hand? The the proverbial whole room, right? I mean, living rooms across North Jersey, across the country, across the world, whoever's watching right now, like hands up wherever you look. Because we often do not equate that with adultery. The desire from the act. And while worldly consequences might differ, in Jesus' eyes, he just broke that wall down for everyone. And so let's talk about this. Let's ensure that we're clear on some things of what Jesus is saying. What does Jesus mean when he says the heart? The Bible uses that word heart as a metaphor for the seat of our most basic orientation, our deepest commitment. It's, it's what we trust in the most. Proverbs 3 verse 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Heart is the foundational core of who we are as image bearers, who we are as men and women. It is what drives us It is where our deepest love and passions are located. It's the cockpit of our lives, the center control. It drives desires, which drives thoughts, which drives words and actions. So Jesus says a distorted sexual desire, which he calls lust, is a result of the heart, not vice versa, right? So so lust does not make a heart bad, But rather, the centrality of the heart is what forms the lust. Later in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus will say, From out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and sexual immorality and theft and false testimony and slander. So we have to see what Jesus is saying here. Um, In in the 20th century British pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones makes a, uh, I think, a very helpful distinction Um, on this passage when he talks about um, sins versus sin. Sins are symptoms, but sin is the disease. So sins, like Jesus lists in Matthew 15, evil thoughts, immorality, slander, 
Those are symptoms of the sin of disease, or of the disease of sin for that matter. It is a, it is a bad heart. It's due to a sinful nature. And so often, we find ourselves trying to just manage sins. We just try and treat the symptoms and manage the symptoms without ever addressing the disease. A sinful heart. And so Jesus just shines a spotlight on our hearts. And in this case, or any time that Jesus does this with any area of life, there are two responses to the disease of sin that we could have. We could, we could either ignore it or repent of it. We can ignore it. We can turn our back and run from God and say, no, 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 I'm not guilty like that. Desire is not the same as action in the world's eyes, and so it shouldn't be the same in, in God's eyes. And then we focus just solely on managing symptoms, relying on our own strength, hoping it works out both in this world and in the next. We, we, we can ignore it. Or we can repent. We can run towards God. We can draw near to the one who draws near to us and, and receive a new heart that only he can offer. A new orientation a new nature that transforms our control center that drives those desires and those thoughts and those words and actions. You see, church, repentance is a good word. It's a word that brings hope. It's a word that exists because of grace. A word that tells us God has made a way where there was no way. And to ignore it might be more comfortable now, but it will be painful later, apart from Christ. But to repent might be, in the short term, more painful now, but it's the only thing that will lead to lasting comfort in Christ later. Remember, throughout this whole series, the primary message of the Sermon on the Mount is not, you guys, go try harder. You hear me? Go try harder. It's not the message. Not try harder, but look higher. We don't only need different tools to fight against lust. Those tools can help, and we'll get there, but we can't start there. Jesus says, you need a new heart. Trying to fight lust without the heart of Christ is like trying to fly an airplane without fuel. You can be all set up, have all the controls at your disposal, but you won't go anywhere. And likewise, we will never grasp the meaning of salvation without first understanding the reality of sin as a disease, a heart disease, before it ever becomes a behavior issue. So it starts there, the centrality of the heart, but Jesus does not leave it there. Once we receive a new heart, he does now provide both the motivation and the power to battle against the sin that remains, which leads to number two, the danger of lust. The danger of lust. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 
For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Here's what Jesus constantly does, right? Again, remember, perfect preacher with a perfect message, right? He draws us to himself as our only hope. And then he empowers us to live a life that pursues holiness. And in this context, a life of purity. And he makes these purposeful kind of overstatements in order to make his point, right? He uses hyperbole. And the point is not that you should literally cut off your hand or tear out your eye, but that we should be, go, be willing to take extreme measures to battle against lust. If Jesus just said, hey, hey guys, lust is dangerous, and so, and so we should really go to great lengths to battle against it. He, he could have said that, but that doesn't have the same punch, right? That doesn't come across the, wrong, the, the, the same way. But by overstating it, by saying tear your eye out if it causes you to sin or cut your hand off if it causes you to sin, it it gets your attention. It, It cues us into just how dangerous the sin of lust really is. There's a reason why Jesus talks this way for lust in ways that he doesn't talk about it with other sins. Because I think they then, and we now, more so than any other sin, tend to water it down. Is a lustful desire really that big of a deal? Is there ever a part of you that just kind of says, come on now, aren't there more important things we should focus on? This is, this, it's human nature. We should not feel guilty or ashamed about it, or, you know, we can manage it. I think there are two reasons why it is so dangerous and why lust truly is a threat to the kingdom of God, because it is both personal and private. That's why I think it's so dangerous. It's personal and private. It is easier, I think, than nearly every other sin to keep private, in that you can be addicted to lust, and no one really know. It's harder to be addicted to alcohol without people knowing, or to drugs, or to be a serial liar, or to be overly greedy, and you can go down the list, that that sins generally make themselves more public, but lust, more than the others, can be privatized can be a full-fledged addiction, and no one needs to know. And similarly, we often tell ourselves that it's just personal. And this is the single largest misconception, and I think, again, why it's so dangerous, that we just kind of say, well, it's just me. I'm not actively harming anyone else with my personal, private actions. And I think it is the enemy's most effective lie in this area. Because even private, personal sin, including lust, especially lust, 
always has damage that goes beyond your own soul. And I hope I can kind of just in a few minutes now show how this is the case, that it's never just personal, never just private. So in the 21st century, um, lust is the natural fuel for the pornography industry. And, and combined with the accessibility and privacy that, pro- that porn offers, the industry has exploded and experienced monumental growth in the last even 20 years in the growth of the technological age. The porn industry makes more revenue per year than the networks CBS, NBC, and ABC combined. The largest pornographic website that I will not name gets more monthly visitors than Netflix, YouTube, and Amazon. Pornography cheapens sexual desire by dehumanizing others as objects for personal pleasure. It commodifies image-bearing human beings. And it distorts people's own view of sex. It literally rewires people's brains. And to show that it's never just private, in the context of marriage, it often deadens and replaces one's sexual desire for their spouse. I heard a seminary professor um, once who Uh, He's been teaching at this seminary since the 1980s, and uh, his wife would kind of take it upon herself to have kind of her personal kind of mentoring ministry where she would uh, meet with women who were either enrolled at the seminary or married to somebody who is. And this professor said that up until 20 years ago, the number one question she received from women was how can they, in a healthy way, satisfy these sexual desires of their husband when it seems to surpass theirs? And then he said around the year 2000, it began to flip to the point where today, the number one question his wife receives from women is, How can they increase their husband's sexual desire to match their own? How can they get their husband to desire them? And so the professor just stopped and asked, Now you tell me, what changed? In a societal context, what changed 20 years ago? The accessibility and growth of the porn industry. And it deadens intimacy in marriages, which, among other things, contributes to a rise in divorce rates. But beyond that, whether you're married or you're single, what many people don't even realize is that every time somebody visits or views a pornographic website, it adds to the problem because those websites sell ad revenue per click and per view. And so the massive usage rates for people who are not paying for the content are paying to fuel the content by their viewing. 
And as usage rates and viewing rates go up, so do, does the growth of devious and more distorted desires, including a rapid rise in the popularity of rape porn and child porn, which makes the pornography industry the single biggest driver of the sex trafficking and child trafficking industries. Because now, not only can you make money for kidnapping and selling women and children, but now you can make a profit after buying women and children by posting and monetizing the videos online. Did you know that child trafficking is not just an issue in third world countries or some foreign nation? but that it is a problem right here in the United States. And do you know where the vast majority of child trafficking cases come from in our country? It comes within the foster care system. And the foster care system, which is disproportionately filled with non-white children in relation to the overall population, also exposes a racial racial disparity in how African-American children are more prone to be subject to sex trafficking as a result. I know this is a lot, but that's not all. When you become used to dehumanizing people and objectifying both men and women as sex symbols on the screen for personal pleasure, it leads to dehumanizing men and women that we may meet who We just want to use for sex and not be committed to relationships that lead to marriage, but are used just for pleasure. And inevitably, when there is more sex outside of marriage in a society, there will be more unwanted pregnancies. And since we're already used to dehumanizing actual people, it's not difficult then to then dehumanize an unborn child and get an abortion. I'll stop there, but I hope we get the point. Church, there is a reason Jesus overstated the vital need to battle against lust because it is never just a personal, private thing. It unravels entirety societies on every level, from marriage to unhealthy views of sex amongst youth to sex slavery, racial injustice, abortion, and more. So Jesus overstates his point, in, but in reality, he overstates nothing. All sin has societal implications and personal implications, for he says clearly, and let those with ears to hear, hear the word of the Lord, that it is better to lose a member of the body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. Hell is another one of those topics that I mentioned near at the top that tend to make people uncomfortable when there's teaching on it. But if you hate hearing about hell, you'll hate Jesus because no one in Scripture talks about hell more than him. It is a warning given to us for our good, and we can ignore it, or repent of it. All right, let's go to point number three. I want to finish with the battle from victory. 
the battle from victory. And I want to speak candidly to those who feel like that right now they are pinned down by feelings of shame and regret based on your past in the realm of lust and sexual sin. For those who have made peace with hidden sin in your life and think that you can just manage it without affecting the rest of your life. And or, I want to speak to those who, who know very well you're in the midst of a battle right now against the flesh and it feels like you're a child fighting against a hundred pound gorilla where you've tried and you've tried and you've tried and you feel like you make no ground and there's this level of embarrassment that if I'm ever let this be known, no one would love me, no one would respect me, no one would allow me to do anything. This just has to be my fight. And if you feel like none of those describe you right now, I'll tell you that it's never too far-fetched for any of us that that will be true one day. Or, at the very least, you are absolutely close to someone who is in that fight right now. And God can use you to really help them by neither ignoring it nor just telling them, just do better. One thing Jesus does not explicitly mention in these verses, but I think it is implicitly present, and I don't want to end the sermon without saying clearly that sexual desire is not sin. And so I know we're going a little bit long here, but hang with me, especially those of you watching, young adult, high school, college, I want you to hear me. Sexual desire is not sinful. Acknowledging beauty and beautiful things, including people, is not inherently sinful any more than it would be sinful to acknowledge a beautiful view in nature. God created sex. God designed it. God affirms it in all of its physical, emotional, and spiritual pleasure as a beautiful gift when it is stewarded within his design. And that design, clearly outlined in Scripture, is within the context of a monogamous marriage between one man and one woman. All sex within that marriage covenant is in accordance with God's design, and all sex outside that marriage covenant is not aligned with God's design and is sin. Just as any desire or action outside of God's design in creation is in any area of life. So let's connect those dots here. The problem of lust that Jesus is warning against here is not the problem of attraction and beauty and desire, but rather an inordinate sexual desire for someone outside God's design. And so sex is a gift, but I want you to hear me. It's not a gift that we cannot do without. To be single for life is not to be limited. It's not to be unfulfilled. It's not to lack joy 
Because a gift is not God. God is God. And if we have God, we can have complete and full satisfaction without anything else. And so we will cover this next week, but Jesus says, um, there will be no marriage in heaven, which I take to imply that there will be no sexual intimacy in heaven either for all of eternity. And hear me, we won't miss it for a second. It's the reason, amongst others, why those called to singleness is not a curse. Singleness is not brokenness on earth because we will all be single in heaven and we will be whole. So sex within the context of marriage is not the key to fulfillment and there's no amount of sexual sin that the grace of God cannot cover and blot out. I lament the fact that I know There are many in our church who might suffer under the weight of undisclosed sexual sin that shames them daily. And they feel like they can never talk about it. I lament things that I might say or not say that would imply someone cannot be honest about their sin or a struggle with sexual sin in their life out of fear that they will be rejected or not loved and accepted as a result. Brother or sister, no matter what pain or weight that you carry, no matter how deep your sin goes, you are not alone. Remember before, if we're just talking about sexual sin, everyone's hand is up. And you need to know and be affirmed that in Christ you are fully forgiven by a God who knows it all and who loves you still. Because when he sees you and when he sees me, he does not see sexual sin of my past of which there is plenty. He sees the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. For I am united with him in his death and resurrection by faith. And so I am free to battle my flesh, not for some victory that I hope to get in the future, but from the victory that was accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago. I can battle from victory. And so here's how I want to finish. I want to give us four things that can help us address sexual sin because of the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Man, I wish I could give 40 things, but limited by time, let me give you four. Number one, first thing that God gives us to battle against sexual sin is repentance. I want to say it again, church, repentance is a good word. It's a word of freedom, that God has freed you to repent and that we can freely confess sin and turn and draw near to him, knowing he is faithful and just to forgive. 
And so let us resist the all-too-common urge in this area of sex and sexuality and sexual sin to just try and justify, to, to blame shift, to say, yeah, but, or what about... What about my story? What about this situation? What, what about all these struggles I'm facing? Church, repentance is a good word. Don't blame shift. Don't yeah, but. But let us own it. Because a lack of repentance will perpetuate the problem. It will plunge us deeper into shame, which weakens our defense against the next temptation. Number one, repentance. Number two, act decisively and quickly when temptation hits. Act decisively and quickly when temptation hits. This is a matter of the heart, but the heart is formed by the eyes, right? Later in the Sermon on the Mount, in fact, next chapter, Jesus will say, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be filled with darkness. When Jesus said in verse 28 that everyone who looks at a woman, the word for look, it literally means gaze. If your gaze is upon a woman, it leads to unhealthy, sinful sexual desire. One commentator said, it's not the first look that is the problem, but the second and the third. You look in Scripture, you see a contrast of characters in the Old Testament. You see King David, who set his gaze upon Bathsheba, and he desired her, and he abused his authority to get her. And you contrast that with Joseph in Genesis, uh, in the book of Genesis, when, when, when Potiphar, uh, his boss's wife, came upon him and came on to him, he did not linger. He fled. He left his coat behind. And he still got penalized for it, but his conscience was clear. He did not linger. Brothers and sisters, don't linger. There's a difference between acknowledging beauty and obsessing over it. Pastor Joe and I were recently talking about a book by Alan Noble called Disruptive Witness. I know I mentioned this book several times in a Jonah series um, a couple years back, but I was reminded of the book while preparing for this sermon because um, in it, Noble talks about being a, a faithful Christian in a postmodern distracted age. How can you be faithful in a postmodern distracted age? And as part of the book, he talks about beauty and how nothing in this world that is good, beautiful, or true ends with us, but there's always a movement towards God. And so he called it the double movement where you see a thing of beauty, you momentarily contemplate its beauty, and then you move your focus towards God and thank him for it. He calls it the double movement. And he applies this in the book, he being a married man, when he sees an attractive woman who is not his wife. That at that moment, he's got choices. He can lust, he can force his eyes away and try to avoid the feeling of lust in his own power. Or he can feel bitter that the beauty is not his to enjoy. In every case, 
the feeling was unloving to the woman and dishonoring to God, and plus he would just feel guilty all the time. But taking Paul's cue in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to give glory to God in all things, he employed the double movement. First, acknowledge the beauty and then move the focus to God. And he said he adopted this prayer. Listen up. Maybe you need to adopt this prayer. Dear God, thank you for her beauty and that it is not mine to participate in. The double movement. Perhaps you can deploy that moving forward when scrolling Instagram or TikTok or watching TV or in-person communications. Act decisively. Don't linger. Two more. Number three, involve others and utilize resources. Involve others and utilize resources. Here's a two for one. Accountability is so vital in the battle against lust. So who has permission in your life to ask you the hard questions? Who doesn't have to walk on eggshells around you but can just be direct? Who can you turn to freely if you are struggling in this area? Church, this is not a fight you can fight alone. And so let me just say to those who are at Grace um, that this is something that our staff tries to talk about often. And and Christy, being our women's ministry director, and Joe and I as pastors, uh, it's a call to both men and women that if this is a struggle, if this is something that you feel you don't have somebody that you can talk to honestly about it and just say that this is a struggle and I want to fight against it and I want you to help me, we are available I mean, open invitation. Church, a lone ranger is a dead ranger. Like this week, don't let it linger. Get in touch with us. No judgment, no holding back. Let's talk. Men, contact me. Women, contact Christy. Let's get the ball rolling. And then resources, that there are numerous amount of apps that we can put on our phone, that we can put attached to our streaming services, that, there are, that are out there, again, that we love to talk about and share. Just in a simple search online, you can find it as well. But you need to have the desire to it and then to build in structures of accountability to hold you to it. There are books that we can read and recommend together. Ask for them. Even if you have to pretend like if it's for someone else, ask for them. And then number four, and lastly, This is about a lens, not a list. Not a list, but a lens. From experience, oftentimes the fight here becomes a list of things we want to do and a list of things we don't want to do. And we try to follow the list as best as we can. And we try and white knuckle it. And we manage the symptoms. And from experience, again, you might make it a week. If you're really disciplined, you might even get to a month But if that list and effort is divorced from the power of the Spirit and your eyes being on Christ, it won't last. So I say this often in different areas and different applications, but what you want is not a list but a lens to view your battle through the lens of the gospel. 
that there's nothing you can do when you're in Christ that will make God love you any more than he already does. And conversely, there's nothing you can do when you're in Christ that will make him love you any less than he already does. And knowing that and living your life through that lens will not make you lazy. It will fuel you. Is the lens through which we can view our life, the lens of the gospel. Brother or sister, you are bigger and more important than your sexual desires because you are a child of God. And I think that instead of fixing your gaze upon something that is outside of God's design, and when we gaze upon Christ, like Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 tells us, looking to Jesus, it's the same word, looking, gazing, and putting your gaze on Jesus, give him your first look, and your second look, and your third look, for when we fix our eyes on him, you will find his eyes fixed on you. And the look on his face is not one of disappointment or shame, but of love and joy over you and in you, for you are in him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for sustaining us through this passage and this sermon, Lord, knowing that these are heavy topics, ones that get to the very core of how we view ourselves. And Lord, I pray that we would be helped by your spirit and by a faithful community that surrounds us in our pursuit to see this through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of your Son. And Father, I pray that you would equip us all in the battle from victory this week and forevermore. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.